Hello, I'm Theo Blackmore from Disability Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly, and I'd like to introduce you to... Sophie Fornell. Um, I'm from um, Disability Assist, which is a disabled persons user-led organisation covering Kent. The Disability Assist, did, did you used to have a different name or has this always been your name? No, we used to be called Centre for Independent Living Kent. Um, it was an organisation set up in 2002. Um, at the time, there was the um, National Centre for Independent Living and regionally lots of centres for independent living um, sprung up. Um, so, yeah, at the time, we were very recognisable as the local Centre for Independent Living organisation that was supporting disabled people. Um, across the county and so the national center for independent living that ceased to exist because it merged with radar and the disability alliance to become disability rights uk yes that's right and um yeah so we we hung on to the name for quite some time mainly because the thought of rebranding was a bit too much for me to cope with at that time um but it was always in the back of my mind that we really needed to change our name so that we were something recognizable i know that um for quite some time we were mistaken as either a day center or a um a, a residential home um we weren't really seen for what we were and so i have felt for a long time that it's important to rebrand so that we're instantly recognizable i also um noticed that lots of the other disabled people's organizations around the country were starting to change their names um and so it made sense that we did it but i needed to do it when the time was right when we had the funding behind us and when it became really apparent as to what we needed to um, call ourselves what we needed to achieve from doing it so yeah we did do it a bit later than quite a lot of the others but um we did it when the time was right for us you know, that's interesting, isn't it? That whole thing around centres for independent living, because it was kind of written into legislation under the um, putting people first agenda, which was mm. the Blair government's agenda. And they started talking about how every local authority should have a centre for independent living in each area. And they were encouraging local authorities to help set one up if there wasn't one already in existence. And that agenda kind of has it just seems to have gone, really. And so there were lots of centres for independent living that were named because then it fitted in with that agenda. So the local authority would recognise them and understand what they were and what they were doing. But now yeah. it's all changed again. Absolutely. Although um, we had lots of discussions about the name and what it should be. And we have included for independent living as as our name as well so we're disability assist for independent living we wanted to carry something through because actually our history and center for independent living kent and the way that was set up and the ethos and the um principles of independent living that that followed are still really important in everything that we do so we wanted to keep a part of our history within the new name and so that's why we have included for independent living within our name but we are known as disability assist because otherwise it's all a bit of a mouthful yeah and you know again that's very interesting something you said earlier which was about 
um, it better reflects kind of what you do because people thought you're an independent living centre or that you've offered day services or whatever it might be. I think there is at the heart of the DPO, I'll use the term DPO, which represents the words disabled people's organisations within the DPO movement. I think we're very clear about what it is that we know and what it is that we do. But I think for people looking in often, they don't really know. And that includes sometimes local authorities and local government and other voluntary sector organisations. It does. But mainly, I, I fear it um, is unrecognisable by a lot of disabled people. And at the end of the day, they're the people we want to reach and they're the people we want to be supporting and working with. And if they don't recognise that these organisations are out there for us, then where will we know to turn to support to for support? Um, it's quite interesting because I was absolutely oblivious to organisations like this years ago after I was first diagnosed and acquired a disability. I had no idea that organisations like this existed. And through talking to colleagues um, who I have started working with along the way a lot of them too had no idea until they accidentally stumbled across the likes of us um we don't you know it's not obvious necessarily that these organizations are here and i often um when talking to people about this i say like if you're an older person you know that there's an age UK somewhere in your area and you know to contact them if that's the organization that is there to support older people, you know it. Um, wherever you might live in the country, you can probably pretty much start Googling um, Age UK and you'll find the kinds of organisations that you need. But what do you start Googling for if you're a disabled, a younger disabled person and you're looking for support and you, you know, there's nothing obviously out there? Yeah, you Google the world disability and that enters up a whole world of pain. You have no idea what you're going to come across there, really. Some sort Absolutely. of crazy, crazy gadget, which is going to make all of our lives better. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're based in Kent. I don't really know much about Kent. I think, you know, I've, I'm from Disability Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly. And the, the picture that everyone has of Cornwall is that we're a very rural area. And that's absolutely true. I mean, our biggest city is... Well, everyone thinks it's Truro, which is about 20,000 people. But in fact, it's Sonostal, which is about 22,000 people. And, you know, that's we are very small and very rural. What's how would you describe Kent maybe? You know? Kent is very mixed. So we have some large towns and cities and also we're not that far from London. Um, but also there are some very rural areas as well. And so it really is a big mix of are we trying to work with people who are kind of isolated there's a lot of people isolated particularly with transport um being difficult at the moment bus services being cut things like that um so we have a real mix of some people living in towns and cities and others being really out in the sticks so that must be really challenging for you then as a dpo Yes. So um, if I can sort of go back a bit to our history, Please, um, yeah. when Centre for Independent Living Kent started, the first thing that they did was um, they applied to the lottery and were successful in getting funding for a mobile office 
which was basically a, a an old camper van which they um re refurbished so it was accessible it had a lift and everything so that they could go out into the community out to the villages the rural areas and see people out there because people were really struggling to get into the towns and cities so um that's how disability assist started uh, sorry center for independent living kent started um but that soon became too expensive and actually we had to look at new ways of working because we couldn't afford the upkeep of the vehicle and the um you know petrol and, and getting out and about it was it became really expensive and i remember back in the early days got old. yeah i remember back <laughs> in the early days of the national lottery that loads of smaller organizations applied for minibuses and applied for vehicles and mm -hmm. got them and then the running costs suddenly meant that they couldn't keep them after three or four years so they all had to sell them again so you were kind of stuck in that situation yourselves absolutely and also the storage of it when it wasn't out and about i mean all of these things really added up and became um yeah unworkable especially as the vehicle got older oh you've frozen you very further. lucky in that we were um, able to use a small office space in the Red Cross building in Maidstone, which we did for a number of years as well. Um, but we had to look at, as we were growing, um, as I became involved in the organisation and it went from one member of staff to two, we needed a bit more space. So we started to look for somewhere which would be more accessible for people to come and see us. Um, and so we got an office in Ashford in the shopping centre there, so, so which you, was, when, when which was great at the time. It felt like a really positive move forward. Brilliant. However, actually, people weren't coming to visit us we were still going out we were doing a lot of home visits and a lot of community visits because people were unable or unwilling but actually i think really unable to come out to us so um it soon became clear that actually having an office space wasn't really the way forward either and um at that time anyway and then the pandemic hit and our lease was nearly um, up so we took the opportunity to bite the bullet and say goodbye to the office. So when did you become involved with the organisation? Um, in 2010 I became involved. Um, I moved from Southampton so previously I was working for Unity 12 which is a an accessible conference centre in Southampton, which is sort of sitting under, at that time, Southampton Centre for Independent Living, now Spectrum CIL. Um, and I moved, I wanted to move to Kent and I did. And at that time I knew of Centre for Independent Living Kent and assumed it was a similar sort of setup to the one in Southampton. And I met them and realised that actually it was one member of staff working probably about 10 hours a week from a cupboard under the stairs in uh, the Red Cross building. And I thought, oh, OK, this is what I was expecting. So I've been I started as a trustee 
it became clear at that point that there was a lot of work to do. The very first meeting I attended, they were taking a vote on whether to fold or whether to give it another try. I suggested let's let's just try it once more um, and started attending meetings and things. Or I became a trustee and started attending meetings on behalf of Centre for Independent Living Kent and talking to commissioners. And they commissioned us to write a report at that point. Um, that was 2011, 2012, um, about the state of disability in um, Kent and so I worked with another organization that was around at the time called the Simon Paul Foundation and we went out talking to as many disabled people as we could through existing groups and people we, we were aware of in the communities of Kent and um, we wrote a report and off the back of that we started to receive grant funding um, from the local authority, which continued up until this year. Um, so we were receiving grant funding from King County Council, and we were using that to work as, as best we could to support as many people as we could. Um, and then about four years ago, Kent County Council started talking about a move away from grant funding and starting commission services. And that conversation just sort of went on and on and on. And we get a bit closer to the end of our grant and suddenly it's like, OK, we're not ready yet. We'll renew your grant for another year. Um, and then the pandemic hit. And that's when they decided to switch to grant funding, um, which was a challenging time. But um, we, we worked with them. We worked with our members. We undertook another piece of research, which was funded by Fidelity, to understand better from um, um, the people we support, our beneficiaries, what it is they want from an organisation and what's important to them about organizations delivering services and they overwhelmingly were really keen to have an organization that was user-led um, and something that we are always um, quite bowled over by is the reaction we get from people when they realize they're being supported by another disabled person. Um, suddenly it's like a weight is lifted off their shoulders and they think that they're being supported by somebody who really gets it. And that's really powerful um, and something that I think is a string to our bow. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think one of the things that happens when somebody phones up and they say something like this is even a, re a really simple thing and they'll say something like you know what I mean and you can reply yes I do yeah. <laughs> you know I do know what you mean I do know what the buses are like I do know about that building I do know about how difficult it is to get these benefits I do know you know it's it we're all in the same situation together mm. and so how many how many staff do you have at um, disability assist I had a bit of a tot-up because uh, I lose uh, lose track but we have seven actual members of staff on the payroll um plus those people are supported by pas and that varies in number 
um, and often they're funded by access to work. But also we're working with a number of contractors at the moment. Um, so as part of our sort of changing from grant funding to contract, and we have increased our staff numbers and things, it's been really important to make sure the organisation is robust. And we're reviewing a number of policies and um, processes, um, including sort of our finance processes and things like that, to make sure that we are um, fit for you know growth and moving forwards. Um, so that's a huge piece of work that I'm undertaking at the moment, and I am using the support of contractors who really know what they're doing. Great. But, and so something you said earlier, you, you wrote a report for the Kent County Council about the state of disabled people in Kent. Mm. What, what is the situation for disabled people in Kent? I mean, you said about the mix between urban and rural and the kind of, I wrote a report years ago, which was based here in Cornwall, and it's, I'll call it um, DICE, Disability Isolation and Social Exclusion. Um, and so there's a lot of conversation around older people and loneliness there's very little conversation about disabled people and I don't call it loneliness because it's much more of a structural issue I think where disabled people are kind of segregated away from non-disabled people through education through whatever it might be employment all these different things and so disabled people find themselves in situations often against their will and that's a big issue in a rural area um, but like we said before you know you're dealing with urban and rural yeah. Um, so something we have sort of pushed back against. So we have a contract with Kent County Council to provide well-being support to people with a physical disability. And other well-being services have created um, like exercise classes, photography groups and all sorts of sort of um, community opportunities so for people to get involved and and do things um and that's something we've pushed back against because we want people to get involved and do the things that everybody else is doing we want people to be able to to do whatever their non-disabled peers are doing with those people so that we're much more part of a community rather than setting up different groups for people to do and I understand that for some people they like that but for us as an organization we want inclusivity we want people to be able to take part in everything else and be a part of society so we haven't gone down that route of sort of setting up groups and things for people so what we provide is much more information advice and guidance advocacy peer support benefit support now that is a huge one and something that I might just come on to now but um so uh with the cost of living crisis um and also for a number of years now we've been really focusing on supporting people to claim the benefits that they're entitled to now whilst um we want to encourage people into work and doing everything that everybody else is doing um, we also acknowledge that benefits are very important and people need to make sure that they are receiving the funding that they are entitled to. Um, so we um, provide support around benefits. Basically, I um, helping people to identify what they might be entitled to, but also helping people right the way through the process. 
I know that there are other organisations out there who will help with form filling. So the DWP themselves will help with that, but also um, Citizens Advice and other organisations in the community do help with form filling. But um, we also help with that. And we find that when we, we are, that service is quite overwhelmed. And when we do point out that actually the DWP can help with that, there is an immediate sort of barriers up. No, I don't trust them. They will, you know, mark me down or they won't, you know, they won't do, uh, they won't be helping me to claim this benefit. They'll be trying to sort of, mark me down so I don't get it there's a real strong feeling about that um, and also when we suggest citizens advice often they'll say well they don't do home visits they that you know I would have to get there or even getting through to them is a real challenge so um, people seem to want our support with this and this is something we do do so we will go out to people's homes we um understand that um, there are a lot of people who are really isolated and unable to get out and about and this is something that we've always been aware of so we have always been made sure that we can do home visits um, or meet people in their local communities but often it is a home visit that people require um, so we do that and then we can help people prepare for the um, for the assessment and we can even go along with them to the assessment on the day. And then we can help with the mandatory reconsideration process right the way to uh, through to tribunal where we can help them prepare for that, but also attend with them. And that makes a huge difference. There are a lot of people who just say without our help, they would never have gone through with this whole process. You know, as soon as they have been turned down the first time, they would have given up. And we have to sort of explain that, you know, this happens a lot and we need to just keep going with it, reminding people of, you know, their need and why they are eligible for this benefit and supporting them and encouraging them through the process. And um, since April of this year, we've managed to secure over £500,000 worth of benefits for people. Wow. And that's since April of last year, year right? April 2022 yeah that's amazing yeah you know it's an amazing thing so something that I always talk about is or often talk about is about the benefits to the local community of that amount of money so that's a huge amount of cash which is mm. coming into the local community and it's yeah. cash that people are entitled to Absolutely. I mean Liz Trust when she was going when she was the prime minister briefly was talking she changed the language and she changed the language in a really negative way and she made it she started talking about handouts mm. and that was such a negative thing so people have a really negative idea about their, their entitlements and it's yeah. actually money that they're entitled to so that they can put food on the table absolutely half a million pounds coming into a local community is a huge amount of money which is spent by disabled people where is it spent in local shops so it mm. really benefits the local community on local services so it's mm. money coming into the area that you're really helping to generate Absolutely. And also helping people to, you know, during a cost of living crisis, this is actually money in people's pockets. It's helping them pay their rent so that they don't get behind on on um, rent arrears or whatever. So it is actually really making a difference to people 
right now. And so one of the questions I was going to ask you is what are the key issues in Kent? I expect that they are the same as a lot of the key issues we have here in Cornwall, but you know, the cost of living crisis is top of the list. We just came through the pandemic, which was the top of the list. And now it's the cost of living crisis mm. and, you know, food bank, people who use food banks, the majority of people who use food banks are disabled people and always have been um, disabled mm. people are the poorest section of the community and so I expect that's a really big issue for you as well as it is for us down here. Yeah, I think the um, big issues really are, and, and this isn't just since the pandemic, this was way before then as well, things like housing, appropriate housing for um, disabled people, which is accessible, that people can actually use and live in comfortably. That's a real issue um also a, a, transport. A, real, a real big issue for me in housing is because they don't make accessible houses and so if you have somebody for example who's you know you have a family they have a child who has an impairment and then when the child grows up and they move out of the house they might move have to move they might have to move 50 or 100 miles away and they just lose all of their support network Absolutely. A real concern. Also, and, and this is just anecdotally that I've heard over the last week, um, people being advised when they're moving into new build properties that the um, walls aren't strong enough for grab rails. Wow. And this is anecdotally, but I've heard it twice now and I need to do a bit of probing and digging around that. But that is a real concern, isn't it? If there are new properties, I mean, Kenton, like I'm sure most places, there are new builds going up absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, but if they aren't, you know, robust housing that are fit for sort of forever homes, then we're going to have a problem, aren't we? Yeah, and it costs millions of pounds to change homes once they are up, but it costs much less to build them up in the first place in a robust way. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, as I said, I've just heard this twice in the last week, and I need to do a bit more digging around about that. But um, it is a concern if if this is the advice people are being given. Yeah. And so housing, uh, cost of living, and you are going to go on to other things as well. Yeah, so transport, um, as I alluded to earlier, bus routes and things are being cut if they're not um, being, if they're not profitable. Um, and I know that the local authority or, or the local councils are subsidising some of those routes, but they can't subsidise them all. Luckily, um, there's a service called the Kent Carrier Service, which is sort of the um, uh, the accessible bus um, service. Um, that contracts for that have been renewed now. Um, there was a worry that they were going to be cut, and they haven't this time. So at the moment, they're still going, which is really helpful. Um, and also. Um, PA recruitment, that's a biggie. And I don't think that's specific to Kent. I think that's everywhere, isn't it? So um, getting the support people require from personal assistants, carers, it's really difficult. Yeah, in a rural area, it's an absolute nightmare as well, because if somebody in the village who needs some assistance, needs a personal assistant, the nearest one might be 50 miles away again. 
absolutely um and i know that work is being done and i have been chairing a a direct payments users group um for the past year um to try and work with the council to bring about a sort of change so that there is a better um better message going out there about the role of um of um, personal assistance and direct payments and trying to encourage more people onto them encourage more people to become personal assistants um so there is a lot of work going on around that but if we can't get the people who want to do that kind of work then it is going to be difficult you know one of the things we do at disability cornwall is we have a personal assistance it's kind of a matching service so somebody will go into it and they'll you know it's like almost like a dating agency so you can start to find people who meet your needs and who you can recruit and we help them through the recruitment process mm. um, and it's a really strong thing that disabled people's organizations can do i know some disabled people's organizations are contracted by the local authority and the entire personal assistance service is passed over to the dpo it's not happened to us but mm you know it's it is potentially a source of income for us as organizations and it's a bit of a weight off the shoulders for the local authority who don't particularly necessarily do it very well anyway yeah um yes it is definitely something that i know in other areas is happening um but not here yet no wouldn't it be lovely if it happened everywhere <laughs> And that's going back to an earlier conversation that we were we were having about, you know, do people understand what it is that we do? And this is the kind of thing that we really do very well. Um, another thing that we do very well, you mentioned it just then, was the kind of the well-being services. And we've just come through the COVID pandemic. Um, and I noticed that what happened with lots of organisations is they changed. Lots of disabled people's organisations flipped. So instead of being very... You know, I hesitate to use the word passive, but we receive people. So people call into us if they need help with, um, you know, the benefits advice or the, or local services, whatever it might be, social care, health care, whatever it might be. And we started calling out so that we were making social contact for people and checking people were okay. They had their food, they had their medicines, they they need everything they needed. Um, and we started offering this thing which became the well-being services and I think loads of disabled people's organizations did that because it was a real response to a def definite on the ground need mm. did, did, did you do anything similar like that yeah so we um started um a, a telephone befriending service but also I think so with the pandemic I didn't have a policy for a global pandemic. I didn't know what I was doing. I was making it up as we went along. Um, so, but the first thing we did realize was that um, we needed to be able to keep in touch with people better. And also something that for years we had been sort of talking about internally was how do we actually reach disabled people? Because there are a lot of people out there who we have always called the known unknowns. So we know that there are disabled people out there who we haven't been able to engage with, who we haven't been able to connect with. And that was part of the reason for the rebrand. So if we had a name which was more instantly recognisable for what we do and the 
beneficiaries we support, then that would help us to connect with those people. But we also realised we needed to invest a lot more into uh, communications. So we were very fortunate that we, um, we knew of a communications officer who was out there um, and we started conversations and luckily she was available and she started working with us. I think she started off at like one day a week and she supported us with our rebrand and has stayed with us and is supporting our communications going forward. And just today we have, because we send out a monthly e-newsletter um, and um, our our reach has grown from before she got involved we had a newsletter a bi-monthly bulletin which went out to about 40 people this month it's going out to over 1300 people wow and the um click-through rate is uh, about 10 percent where the national average is about three percent so we have Got what does that what does that right, mean we feel. what does that mean what's the click-through rate what does that mean so through our e-newsletter we have sort of links and things to different parts of our website different blog posts whatever and the numbers of people actually clicking through so it's people who open it and then people who actually read it and click through to other parts of the newsletter that's the click-through rate um as far as i understand no. <laughs> I'm not so, very technical. Um but it shows but that yeah, really... so um we're really amazed by how that has worked for us and how it's continuing to grow. Um yeah, but actually the it's quite interesting because we can see through the diagnostics um what is being clicked through the most and by far the most um clicked through articles and things are um anything to do with finances which perhaps isn't surprising but you know it means that it gives us a steer of which way we need to be going with the newsletter and the services we deliver so you know you sound you sound like you've got it covered there's a very small team of you that working very hard do, do, do you ever sleep <laughs> do, you, do you ever do anything else this is the thing with dpos i think is that we spend a lot of time doing the work that we do there's mm. never enough people there's never enough hours in a day there certainly is never enough money no well so one of the things that i'm really focusing on the moment on at the moment is i'm very concerned about succession planning and about the future um making sure that uh, there are people coming up who are who have the skills and experience in order to you know work within organizations like ours and as i said we have grown substantially over the last few years and actually recruiting disabled people with the skills and knowledge and experience that we need has been really really hard and i'm wondering what are disabled people doing where are where is everybody we see like the statistics from the census and things about the numbers of disabled people out there and there's a lot so where are they and why are they not coming forward to work 
you know, for the kinds of jobs that we're able to provide. We're really positive about employing disabled people. Um, and we, you know, we've got quite generous packages and things to, uh, of support for our employ employees. So um, it's, it's, I'm just concerned, where is everybody? What are they doing? And I think about sort of my personal experience of, you know, um, of acquiring a disability and, and the kind of messages and things that I received at that point. And I just think there's an awful lot of work that can be doing to encourage disabled people to um, into employment, to work, to um, if, if that's paid or voluntary, that kind of thing, that we need to really encourage disabled people to get more involved and to, to really have a life not just exist you know it's the big deal isn't it i think is how do we do that that succession planning because you know i'm an old bugger i'm excuse me i'm an old person now and you know i've been gained since the 19 i was diagnosed in 93 so that's you know 30 years ago now so i'm 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 kind of the past as it were of organizations and we need to be thinking about the future and getting some younger people involved who are a bit younger and funkier. I mean, perhaps they'll change our organisations and perhaps as a result of it, organisations will grow and evolve and change and be different things, which I don't think is a bad thing. I think organisations no. need to adapt and change with the times. Absolutely. Um, and it's not really for me to be doing that because I'm old and I'm stuck in my ways. You know, I remember the days before the Internet you know and all of that and it's really boring old old person's conversations that I have so I don't know what the answer to that is I mean it's some way to get younger disabled people involved I mean with the DPOs I think one of the things that one of the messages that we can start to put out there a bit is that if somebody gets involved with a DPO the world is their oyster they can do anything if what they want to do is to make videos interview other disabled people produce newsletters whatever it might be, provide information and advice, you know, they've got a whole range of different job roles within these organisations. Um, and there are funders out there, they're difficult sometimes to come by, but and funding is always hard to come by, but we can write projects to get younger people involved in, in whatever ways they want. Mm. And I think that's something that's always at the back of my mind that I really need to be looking at sort of engaging with younger people. Um, our organisation was set up to support people, um, adults. Um, so I would need to look at what that would mean for the organisation. But I do think that we need to be capturing sort of school leavers and also getting into schools to talk about the kinds of um, opportunities that are available, but also to encourage people to just, you know, it's not all our organisations, you, you can do anything. <laughs> and actually you should have the same opportunities as all sort of young people and school leavers. Um, I was in a, um, and again, this is anecdotally, and I haven't done much really to explore it further, but I um, attended a um, network called PDNet, um, which is um, a network of educators working with young people with um, SEND, special educational disability needs. I'm not very good with acronyms either. Um, and I had a conversation there asking, you know, what um, 
what careers advice are being given within sort of the special schools and um and would we be able to talk to their sort of school leave students coming up to sort of school leaving age and they the response was you'd be better off talking to the mainstream schools which have disabled students rather than talking to the special schools because we don't really do that sort of thing and that worries me an awful lot if people um, at those schools are not being prepared for the life ahead um, and for the future, then that's a real problem, I think. Again, I haven't done much to actually delve into that, but I think that is a piece of research that really needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of research that needs to be done as well around what disabled people's organisations are doing to attract younger people because some, some organizations I think are doing things better than others or some organizations have recruited more people and I don't know it would be interesting to share that those kind of experiences really across across the board. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And so the other thing is really just about um, the DPO sector nationally you know I think we there is a great number of organizations we're between two and three hundred we're organizations are always closing i heard about another one that's closing you know just last month in fact quite a big one up in manchester and it's shocking that we are we're closing as organizations but there are still quite a lot of us around i think if you're drawing maps of where dpos are across the country um and then you you publish that map and then do a similar thing for any other country i think we've probably got more and a greater variety than many, many other countries have um and it's just really interesting to me how this happened because it's there isn't a kind of a central coordinating body making it happen and looking at it and saying right there isn't one there we need one there because there are gaps and there isn't one for these people so we need some you know so if you start getting into the whole intersectionality issue i've only come across one maybe two organizations that work with lgbtqia disabled people um in London and that's in London and it's like well what about if you're LGBTQIA or anywhere else in the country um you know so it's that's an interesting thing about how these organizations evolved and grew just kind of from the grassroots all separately and all individually collectively potentially we do have a big voice but it seems to me that's being underutilized at the moment there are a few sort of networks and things so um I do attend when I'm have availability i attend the uh, disability rights uk our voices network yeah. um and also um in the southeast there's the southeast network for disabled people's organizations known as senpo um uh, which i attend whenever i'm available to do so as well and that's a really nice network it's quite a small network but it is one where we can sort of talk openly and have the sorts of discussions and ask for support from our peers which i find very valuable yeah more the more of that the better i think you know and i think those sort of regional ones really work and there, there isn't one down here particularly i don't think great so what's the future look like as you said who knows that's for the young people to work out but um <laughs> I, I think that, you know, 
with technology and, and things, I think that the future will look very different to now for disabled people's organisations. However, I hope that the ethos and the reasons behind it do remain and that the history is remembered because I do think it's very important and that we don't lose sight of our reason for being. Yeah, there's an awful lot of work to make our history and there's an awful lot of work behind things like the social model of disability and sort of a lot of the underpinning ethos of our organisations. And it would just be daft to lose that and it would be daft for people to have to reinvent it and do it all over again. Absolutely. I've been very lucky here because... Um, Professor Mike Oliver, who was instrumental in the social model, he lived it not far away um, from me here and I was introduced to him quite early on. And so I had a lot of time sort of talking to him and um, working with him on various projects and things um, before he sadly passed away. Um, so I feel very, I've been very lucky to have kind of um, those kinds of conversations with him to really understand sort of the history behind that, um, yeah. Yeah, Professor Mike Oliver, for people who don't know, was the person who first named the social model of disability. Um, and he was a really good egg. There's, I think there's also space for DPOs to be talking to academia and, and vice versa, because there's a lot of work going on in academia, some of which is going to be interesting to us and vice versa. I think we're in a really under, underutilized and under-researched area. I think we're unique. Absolutely. So I'm currently talking to the Kent Research Partnership. Um, that is um, the University of Kent and um, Adult Social Care um, about a research fellowship opportunity, which I'm in the process of applying for at the moment. And that's specifically to look at employment opportunities for disabled people, although in um, they have encouraged me to really narrow it down. So I'm looking at employment opportunities and encouraging people with MS into employment. The reason I'm going down the MS line is because that is the condition I have and I have a lot of contacts and things. However, I believe that the issue is much wider than that. However, for a research point of view, it's important to narrow it down to something that's manageable because I realise that lots of different conditions and lots of disabled people come from very different places and have very different histories. So, um, you know, people who have had a disability from birth will have had a very different life journey to somebody with MS who has probably been diagnosed between 20 and 40 and have had the benefit of education um, and potentially uh, further education and potentially having started a career before acquiring their disability. So I think it's a much bigger picture that needs to be looked at, but for the purposes of this fellowship application I'm working on, I'm focusing on people with MS. Uh, two, two initials, MS being multiple sclerosis. Sorry. You talked earlier about the PD network. What does PD stand for? Physical disability. Oh, so the PD network. Okay. Yes. And when I was doing my a research project about Cornwall's disability history, I was interviewed this guy and he was a wheelchair user. 
and he'd always been a wheelchair user for his entire life. And he looked at me and he said, so did you recently acquire your disability? And I said, yes, I too have MS. Um, and he said, God, that must be so hard. And it's different perspectives for different groups of disabled people, you know, disabled people who've, like you say, have always been disabled people and there's disabled people like us who've, who've acquired our impairments in our lifetimes. Mm. Yeah, and I think people's pathways to get to this point um, will vary so much that it will have a real impact on their life chances and, you know, their outlook. Absolutely. Hey, listen, it's been fabulous talking to you. And you. Thank you Thank very you. much for your time. Um, Sophie Fornell from Disability Assist in Kent. Thank you.